0: Take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 1. I want to take us to a very familiar passage with very familiar truth and give us what is probably a very simple message, but one that I hope challenges, encourages us, and stirs us with regard to what really we are called to do. Romans chapter 1, we'll start in verse 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship, For obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to jump down with me if you would to verse 13. Now I would not have you ignorant, brethren... "...that oftentimes I purposed to come unto you, but was let hitherto, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So, as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. <clears throat> For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ." For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. I want to look at this passage kind of comprehensively this morning, but I want to look at it through the lens of a particular phrase that Paul uses that we're all really familiar with. Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. What is the significance of that statement with regard to what Paul is not just already sharing with them, what he will share next in this next chapter in particular, and then what he shares comprehensively throughout the whole book of Romans. We're living in interesting days, aren't we? I don't think the need for gospel stewardship has ever been any greater. It's always great in every generation, but at least in the perspective of those who are currently living, from my lifespan, 52 years, and looking through my years in ministry, I don't think there's ever been a greater urgency to the need for gospel stewardship in our culture. In my years in ministry than there is today. I think the prevalence of the aroma of the gospel is diminishing. That doesn't mean that there's less gospel, but I think we have lived in a Western culture that has been not necessarily flavored by the gospel, but at least scented by the gospel. And I think that aroma is diminishing as we see what's happening in our culture. That has profound impacts on us, doesn't it? Usually, emotionally, there are two predominant reactions... ...that happen in people when something that they hold dearly is assaulted. And some of it depends on their perspective of the audience. The first of those is probably one that many who hold to the gospel of Jesus Christ are experiencing without giving it a lot of thought. The first emotional response, and I'll use it in terms of who we are, to those who see what they hold to be absolutely true as sourced in the authority of the word of God. The primary response that many people feel when that gets assaulted is what? Somebody tell me something you dearly hold, the truths that you hold in the Word of God, the things that you see as falling under the authority of Scripture and lived out in our lives, when that gets assaulted, what is one of your primary responses? Exactly. And anger isn't sinful. What is anger supposed to be as God gives us a sense of righteous anger? What is that supposed to be? I think it actually is a stimulus from God where God, in in a sense, brings about an activity within us that we would accomplish more good than we otherwise would. I think that's what God does in anger, that it's a stimulus because of something going on to drive us through a heightened response to accomplish more good than we otherwise would. It's not about us being angry personally, but so often anger turns sinful, particularly when it becomes ad hominem anger. We turn it towards attacking people rather than problems. And you know what I'm finding? I'm finding that rather than the right type of response because of the assault against the gospel among God's people, I'm finding a wrong kind of response because of an assault against what they see as conservative values. And thus, anger without the good. I think we need to be careful about that. And one of the reasons I think we need to be careful about that is what Paul is saying in this passage of Scripture because we can get angry and realize that we think it is actually justified anger because of what is being attacked and actually not be stimulated to do more gospel work. I don't get to travel as broadly as our president, but I think he would echo this, that... I'm finding today that the church in America in particular is an angry church. But I'm not finding a church that is more stimulated to gospel work. And I think that's a real problem. All of us, I think, would say looking at the ills of culture, whatever they are, whether there are ills today or what they have been universally or what they were that Paul is going to address with the Roman church, and he's going to describe a culture that when we get to the bottom of this first chapter, all of us would acknowledge looks an awful lot like America today. Why? Because he's describing the universal truths of secularism and humanism. This is what it looks like when I set God aside in my thinking. And Paul is going to be really clear with that. But all of us would agree that there's zero question that what Paul is going to say is the answer is the gospel. But I think many Christians will default this year again to the fact that the answer is an election. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't vote. I think part of our stewardship of what we believe when God gives us the tools of things like voting is a stewardship that we should use. But it is not God's primary tool. And I would go further than that here. Because we tend to think in universals. We need to change the culture. But friends, I would challenge you in your thinking biblically to go and look at the scriptures, particularly the New Testament gospel narratives, and there find a place where God gives us a prescriptive process for how we should, in a sense, corporately change the culture. I don't find one. If we would find it, you'd think you'd find it right here. But what does Paul say? Paul says that we are to use the gospel one by one because God changes the hearts of men. And really what men do with what God made is actually what culture is. I think we get really complicated in trying to figure out what culture is. Culture really very simply is what men do with what God made. That's culture. Sinful men do sinful things with God's culture. Redeemed men should do redeemed things with God's culture. And so in this passage of Scripture we we see Paul not being angry. But he points out then, as I I demonstrated, a lens through which he's going to look at this truth. And he's not going to focus on the anger piece. He actually is going to vote on another piece. What do I do when I find something that I dearly hold being attacked? Well, if I look at who is attacking me and either I see it as something I should fear or something by which I want to be accepted, one of those two things, the response is not anger. It is what he describes here as being ashamed. Ashamed can mean a lot of things, right? There is that sense in which I feel a profound sense of guilt because of something overtly that I've done, sin. Is that the ashamed he's describing here? It's not. It actually is more an inclination towards timidity. Timidity. Paul, when you look at what he says, when he describes what he is not, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God unto salvation. He actually is saying, I want you to understand that I am the opposite of that because I know and understand what the gospel is. So I'm not timid with the gospel. I'm not sure that as I travel today that I find churches that are ashamed of the gospel. Which wouldn't make any sense. But do we look at a church today that is living in a culture and either because it fears it or more probably because it wants to be accepted by it or embraced by it is timid with the gospel. In the conversations where the gospel should be interjected, I think we are. We won't have time to walk through the latter half, and it's really not my intention to walk through the latter half because I think we know it very well. But when you look at the cycle of depravity that Paul describes in the latter part of this chapter, and I actually think it's not just one full downward spiral. I think he actually addresses depravity in three separate ways of men's rejection of something. I think that you see there a pretty comprehensive picture of all the places and all the conversations where if I'm looking for gospel stewardship, I should be thinking, oh, there's where I should speak the gospel. Men reject God. What should I do? Have a polemic about God? Well, to an unbeliever, he'll never get my polemic. I actually should say, here's a chance for the gospel. And look at all the cultural things that are addressed here. What should I do when I see an immoral culture? Should I give them a lecture on why they should be moral? Should I talk to them about how they they might get sexually transmitted diseases and give them all those kinds of warnings? Friends, what should be resonating in my heart is, here are people who need the gospel. What should I do when I see a culture that now is changing all the understandings of things like gender and what sexuality actually is. You see it in Romans 1. My heart should be burning that these are people who need the gospel. What should I do when we come to the end of this passage and we experience people who are living in a culture of death, whether that is euthanasia or whether that is abortion or whether that is all of the ongoing things among our younger generation that are things that are testing death. I had a conversation recently with a young man that said, there is no drug like the drug that brings me to the brink of death because nothing gives me that kind of an adrenaline rush. And adrenaline with the drug beats anything. They're willing to go to the edge of death. It is something to be explored because of how it drives me. What is the answer to that? It's the gospel. And so when Paul looks here at this passage of, uh, or or communicates to us here this passage of Scripture, we're going to hear somebody that the whole of this book is driven by an incredible gospel passion. Yes, this book is an incredible legal case for the gospel. But I think, unfortunately, sometimes the way we structure books and break them down, that we break off the introduction to this book in particular from the rest of the book. And if all we do is walk through Romans and we see this clinical presentation of why all men are in sin and, and everything else, and even get to the midsection of later parts, chapter 6 and chapter 8, where, where we're called to, to living the gospel in our own lives, dedicating our lives, Romans 12, in light of the gospel for God's use and purposes, if we disconnect it from the passion that is in Paul's heart... At the beginning of this book, we've missed the point. This isn't a clinical presentation by a lawyer. This is a passionate presentation by somebody who knew what Jesus did for him. And what Jesus could do for others. And so when he says, I am ready, and I am eager, and I am not ashamed, he actually is putting that all together to tell people why it is his life is about the gospel. And part of it is sourced in the fact that he realized his life was the gospel. So, just quickly, look at how Paul introduces Himself in this letter. I think it's incredibly powerful for us understanding why he was not ashamed. So look back at the beginning. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, interestingly, in the Greek text, those two words are reversed. And it's actually Paul's very common practice. It is Christos Jesus rather than. Jesus Christ. And that is actually something that Paul does intentionally. I'll point that out in a minute. Called to be an apostle, and then something that is unique in an introduction for him, separated unto the gospel of God. And I think this is very intentional. Paul is going to introduce himself to a church that really, at this point, he doesn't know and is unknown to him. And so he uses these designations that identify who his master is, what his job is, and what his purpose is. But note that Paul designates himself here with the term a servant or a slave. And that actually is common language for God's messengers. I think Paul puts himself here as an apostle and a slave of Someone in the line of the great messengers for God. This is a statement that is said of Moses and of Joshua and of Elijah and of Nehemiah and most frequently about David. With was someone who intentionally gave their life, put themselves at the disposal of someone for a specific task. And here in particular with Paul, it's not just, I'll give myself to you for your disposal, but it actually describes their devotion to the Lord, and then slavery as complete identification with the Lord. I'm not writing to you to tell you what I'm going to do, I'm writing to you to tell you who I am. But notice here that unlike the Old Testament where the identification was always with Yahweh, here Paul makes this specific and intentional insertion, Christ Jesus. This is the one who is his master. And so, compared with all the other New Testament writers, you find the name of Christ coupled with Jesus a lot of times. But all the other New Testament writers write it as Jesus Christ 47 times and only 7 times is Christ Jesus. Paul is exactly the opposite. He uses the little phrase Jesus Christ 25 times, but he uses this phrase Christ Jesus 80 times. And when he does that, he actually does it for specific reasons. Paul describes salvation almost in a unique way in the New Testament. His most common phrase for describing the salvific work of God in our lives is that we are in Christ. And he does that with a couple of different words, ace and end, but it's speaking about sphere. I was saved into Christ. In other words, what Christ did for me through the gospel wasn't that he looked at me over there objectively and said, Oh, you're going to be in trouble. And he took me out of that trouble and set me just on a different road. What he actually did is reach into that and bring me into himself. Salvation is about identity. That's what Paul is saying. And so I'm not just a servant of Jesus Christ, I'm a servant in Jesus Christ. It's how he viewed his life. And because he viewed his life that way, gospel work wasn't just a task to be done. It actually was a life to be lived. And thus for Paul, everything else about life was a means to an end. That whatever it was he was doing, and his vocation was the fact that he was an apostle, so it's hard to say. But I believe that Paul's life when he was a tent maker, literally making tents, was also about the gospel. And we actually see that when he's making tents, he ends up in gospel conversations. In other words, everything else about life was a means to an end. And that's why he could say, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whatever your hand findeth to do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men. Scriptures implore us that as we live our lives and do our good works, which God before ordained that we should walk in them, that's how we should live. That they are the means, Jesus said, of people seeing gospel light and glorifying our Father which is in heaven. Friends, the glorious truth of this passage of Scripture is... We are in Christ. And because of that, everything that we do has redemptive purposes if we'll see it that way. Why was Paul eager? Why was Paul ready? Why was Paul not going to be timid with the gospel? Because it actually was comprehensive of his entire life. So I guess one of the questions we have to ask is, How often do I allow all the other circumstances of life actually lead me to gospel conversations? Because it's easy to say that, but have our lives be actually the building of a bridge to nowhere. Am I actually taking the rest of it and leading it to gospel work? Paul will make it very clear here. That the gospel is something I live, but the effect of the gospel is only accomplished through a gospel that is spoken. Not just spoken for the purposes of seeing the other person who is lost redeemed. Absolutely. We're living in a culture that the the highest ethical good you can do for a man is allow him to be transparent about his brokenness, and then your job is to affirm it. That's the highest ethical good you could do. Well, good for you. That's who you are. Affirmation is something we all crave, isn't it? Empty affirmation is damning. If all I do is listen to someone's brokenness and affirm that that's who they are, I can leave them hopeless because I affirm it and it communicates to them that maybe that's all you'll ever be. But craving affirmation actually is something that that is built into us because there actually is a a, a God-shaped place in us. And when the gospel fills that need, we long for the gospel to be affirmed in us. And we feel this sense of oppression because the world rejects it, and thus we aren't being affirmed. So we shouldn't judge the world for wanting to be affirmed. We want to be affirmed, and we feel the the, the difficulty because the world's not affirming us. So let me ask you this question. Who should be affirming the gospel in God's children? We should How often do I have conversations rejoicing in the gospel because of the work of God in my life with those that I labor with? You all know the little song, I saw Jesus in you. And maybe sometimes that's what the conversation should sound like. When was the last time you actually said to somebody, you know what, I watched you in that situation and it wasn't easy, but I want you to know I saw Jesus in you. That's affirming the gospel in somebody. Notice Paul does that with these people. People. He actually says to them, Beloved of God, call to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. That your faith is spoken of throughout the world. Friends, there's something to the increasing of confidence that leads to boldness in the life of believers because we affirm the gospel in them. Why do I say that? I say that because we are just about to be inundated, praise God, with 25, 26, 2700 young people who are coming from a culture that is causing them to be timid with the gospel. And they need people that they know, love, and respect who are living the gospel to affirm it in them. Yes, we'll spend time telling them about how their character needs to develop, and praise God, we do. We'll talk to them at times about their brokenness when we see it and how it needs to change, and we need to. But I'm telling you, the prevailing atmosphere on this campus needs to be one where we as God's servants, those who are chosen by God, whose lives are marked by the gospel, who find themselves in Christ, going to these young people and saying, I see Jesus in you. Lean hard into that. You don't need the affirmation of the world. You don't need them to confirm you. You don't need their acceptance. I see Jesus in you, and that is the identity you must pursue. Because it's only there you'll find satisfaction. And I think we'll do it with those young people because we practice it regularly with each other. I want to challenge you this year. We'll have all kinds of meetings. We'll be together. We'll work through problems. We'll have challenges. We are broken. We are fallen. But we'll walk through situation after situation after situation where we'll walk out of it And we'll think, man, I'm glad that's over. And we'll never think about who we were in the situation with. And what Paul is saying here is, I am thinking about who I'm with and what should be happening in their lives. And I want to challenge us to think intentionally about going back to the person and saying, you know what? I am so thankful for how you handled that. I am so thankful because I saw Jesus in you. I saw you affirming truth. And stimulating one another to gospel thinking in how we do everything. And that is what makes the gospel actually the end. And everything else we're doing a means to that end. I think this is God's plan for how we build gospel boldness. That we regularly recognize that it is at work. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. And so Paul introduces himself intentionally. And I think in two ways he shows us the comprehensiveness of this gospel message. Notice in verses 2 and 3, he connects the Old Testament and the New Testament. And he says this, which he had promised before, verse 2, by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. He actually goes back to all of the New Testament. He captures it in one little sentence. I wish a lot of us preachers could do that. But he does it. And he does it by saying, you found it in what is written in the Holy Scriptures. But he actually just very simply says, I want you to understand that what I'm going to tell you about the gospel is actually what God has been saying from the beginning. And then he moves on concerning his son Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. And so he captures this messianic identity. And declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. And he says, this gospel message I'm talking to you is comprehensive. This is the work God is doing. But then notice, it's also comprehensive. By its scope, who it impacts. By whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ to all that be in Rome. And I think here what Paul does is he says, this is what gospel stewardship looks like for everybody. It is a message that affects everything, and it is a message that is for everybody. I think that's simply what he does here. So you may sit here today and say, I don't have the gift of evangelism. And I'm here to tell you, you might not, but you have the stewardship of it. And our stewardships may look different. Not every one of us is called to stand before a group and preach like this. But there's no avoiding the fact that everyone who is in Christ is called to steward the gospel well. And so move then down with me from that to the middle section that we read together. Because I I want us to see kind of the tenor that Paul gives us in this passage of Scripture. It's easy to jump into the flow of this book, beginning in chapter 1 and verse 18, for the wrath of God. And it is a case he is going to make. And allow this to become very clinical. Allow it almost to be a gospel presentation that is very dark. And that will happen if we disconnect... Chapter, verse 18 and on through the arguments of the first three chapters from verses 16 and 17. I think that Paul is intentionally presenting the need, but he is doing so through the lens of the hope. Why is it that Paul's not timid with the gospel? Yes, it's, it's true that the wrath of God is being revealed on a secular humanistic world that is rejecting God at every turn. But he is not calling us here to an angry presentation of the gospel to a rejecting world. He is actually calling us to a confident and bold proclamation of the gospel to a world that desperately needs hope. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believe it no matter how dark the picture is, no matter how deep the rejection is, I can approach a broken world filled with broken people and I can present to them a message that offers gospel hope to every one of them. For gospel stewards, one of the things God is giving us in the gift of the gospel as we present it to the world is that I don't ever have to wonder if the person I'm encountering is hopeless. We have heard the gospel sound. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Spread the tidings all around. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Notice what he says in verse 17. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. I want to leave us with this thought. Because I think this is profound before Paul starts into this description of the wrath of God. And I think we find here at the beginning of this incredible presentation, most detailed understanding of the gospel in all of the scriptures. Paul's why. And I think it's really important. Whether our emotional response to what we hold dearly, the truth of the scriptures being assaulted, is anger or to be ashamed, I think Paul is actually going to call us to a different why that should change that emotional response. Because you see, Paul's why isn't his audience. There are times we're motivated by our audience, we look at them and we see them in pity. There are times we look at them and we see them as as somebody we want to be acknowledged by or affirmed by and thus we might be timid if we're disagreeing with them. There are times we look at them and we, we see them as evil and wicked and an affront to everything that we believe and we respond to them in anger. But friends, anger will not drive us ultimately to carry out good stewardship of the gospel. Obviously, being ashamed is going to do just the opposite. But what Paul says to them is gospel stewardship is actually not about them, it's about God. Because herein is the righteousness of God revealed. And we should live by faith. We should have a life that is marked by wanting to demonstrate who God is, what God has done, the credibility of God's work, the power of God expressed in the resurrection. Because gospel stewardship is about God. So no matter how deep the rejection of men go in verses 18 down through 32, I should never come to the place and say, well, forget you. You reject everything I believe. You're different in every way from me. So forget you. You see, gospel stewardship's not about them. It's about the fact that Genesis makes it really clear that God made man in his image. And they are image bearers. And my God deserves to be glorified through the redemption of his image and that which he made. And the gospel is the means to that being accomplished. Because I long for the glory of God praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the earth hear his voice. I share the gospel with them because I'm passionate for my God to be glorified in their redemption. Our God is worthy of a comprehensive gospel stewardship by those he has redeemed and made his own. And so friends, I, I challenge us with this passage of scripture. So maybe some refreshed thoughts, not new thoughts, on gospel stewardship. I think we must become intentional to go out of our way to make sure that we actually get to the gospel in all of our human interactions. Whether that be affirming the gospel in those that God delightfully allows us to serve with, Or in the first layer of affirming the gospel in the young people that come here and need to be further gospel-shaped. Or in the bold and confident, loving proclamation of a hope-filled message of redemption to those who are rejecting God at every turn. I challenge us today to look at ourselves and say, like Paul, though I'm not an apostle... I am one who is identified as in Christ. And because of that, I am set apart. It's the word he uses here. There's a distinctive work of God that I think in the two terms Paul talks about, as he does in Galatians 1.15, the first was from his birth. This was a purpose for God from his birth. But I think then secondly, on the Damascus road, there was a work of setting apart to gospel work. I think all of us need to view ourselves as this is who I am. And therefore, it will be the aroma of my life rather than merely, oh yeah, and the gospel something I should do. Live the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you that that's even possible. Thank you that our redemption is so comprehensive. God, I pray that you would make us mindful of living the gospel in all our human relationships because you are worthy. In Jesus' name we pray.